This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also available on iTunes. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're here for you, and we want to answer your questions, so send them to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com, or tweet them to pubweeklyradio, that's pubwklyradio, on Twitter. Today, we'll talk with Candy Chang about her art project and book, Before I Die. Then, PW Reviews Director Louisa Ermolino will give us a behind-the-scenes look at PW's 2013 Best Books list. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, which is powered by Nielsen BookScan. In fiction, we have Danielle Steele, and I think in nonfiction, you also have Danielle we Steele. We do. Uh, which that's, uh, that's quite an unusual thing to have someone hit the bestseller list in two categories in one week. Uh, the fiction title is Winners. It's number two on our hardcover fiction list. Uh, you know, it's a Danielle Steele novel. It's pretty much what you expect. It's got uh, a lot of romance uh-huh. and a lot of drama. Um, it's not it's not a romance novel per se. It is really a, a family drama novel uh, about a woman named Lily Thomas uh, who is injured in a freak ski lift accident uh-huh. while on vacation. Um, and you know, she was supposed to be a champion skier and on her way to the Ivy League. And now the, they fear that she'll never walk again. And so... Uh, there's uh, a whole bunch of family push for her. Her father's very rich and he really wants the best care for his daughter. And uh, he blames the neurosurgeon for not basically fixing her and vows to go to one specialist after another and so forth and so on. Uh, And then there's a a connection with another family and their own tragic accident. So, uh, we say that Steele skillfully weaves the strands of the two families together in a layered story about loneliness and companionship, but it is marred by stilted prose. And I think that's one of those things where when you've written as many books as Danielle Steele has, it, it can be just hard to avoid repeating yourself. Sure. And trying to find some new, fresh way of saying things can uh, end up with that stilted feeling instead. But that hasn't stopped it from hitting number two on our fiction hardcover bestseller list. Number three is Charlene Harris's After Dead. Uh, this is actually uh, more of a, a reference book in some ways. It was originally filed under nonfiction and then got moved to fiction. Uh, but it's essentially a, a who's who of Charlene Harris's famous Suki Stackhouse novels. Right. And uh, we, the the book basically is intended to provide the answers to any lingering questions, you know, who married whom and, and what were their kids named and all, all of that sort of thing. And it, it's interesting to see this because the Suki Stackhouse books and t- the TV show True Blood have inspired quite a lot of fan fiction where the fans get to fill in the blanks themselves. And so I wonder if this is meant as a reference or as a, a way of sort of putting paid to that right sure yeah and we had her on our show uh, a few months ago we did and um she she was uh she had a quite a good time i think talking with us about the suki stackhouse books and uh, you can find that along with all of our other shows and our archive on the website 
And then we also have uh, the, the sirens come back for the thrillers. That's how this works every time. <laughs> every time. Uh, um, uh, number seven is Accused by Lisa Scottaline. And uh, this is her intriguing 12th novel featuring the all-woman Philadelphia law firm of Rosado and Associates after 2010's Think Twice. Uh, and we say it's... Uh, a welcome series return after Scottaline's recent three standalone novels uh, and you know, pretty much straightforward legal thriller um, you know, ideal for fans of that sort of thing and finally I just wanted to mention uh, a book that's going to be almost impossible to google that would be S you imagine oh, just giving, oh, giving a book tough, the title sure. of S. Yeah. Um, this is a collaboration between Doug Dorst and J.J. Abrams, the latter obviously best known for TV series like Lost. And uh, it comes in a very unusual package. There's a sealed slipcase, uh, which holds a library copy of a 1949 book called Ship of Theseus. Uh, and the title calls to mind Plutarch's famous paradox, which asks whether a ship that has had all its parts replaced is the same ship. And that's the sort of intricate, layered, complex, philosophical question that fans of Lost, obviously, are, right. are used to from J.J. Abrams. Um, the book is, uh, it's, it's a book, but it's uh, covered in marginalia written by two different students in different colors. It, this is not something that's going to translate well in, into digital publishing. Right. I have no yeah. idea how you'd view something like this on your Kindle when color sure. is part of what makes the, the story work. Right, you're sure. Uh, so we, we say that the, the book will fascinate. We gave it a starred review. And uh, for those in our online age who are able to accept the notion of a chat carried out by handwritten exchanges in a printed book, uh, this is a must read, especially for literary puzzle fans and even for those unfamiliar with Abrams' work in film and television. Wow. Well, on the nonfiction list, uh, we're starting to see a few of the gift books coming out. Uh, and this one is by best-selling cookbook author Reed Drummond. She's known as the Pioneer Woman. And the series title is The Pioneer Woman Cooks. The book title is A Year of Holidays. Now, she got started uh, a few years ago as a blogger, and her books, her blog and books have just taken off. And these are 140 step-by-step -step recipes for simple, scrumptious celebrations uh, covering all the holidays. Uh, uh, Christmas, Thanksgiving, Hanukkah, uh, Halloween, and, and many others. So this is number one on our list. When you say all the holidays, I assume you mean all the major Christian and Jewish holidays. Well, uh, I guess Halloween's kind of well, not ex well, yeah. Halloween's fairly secular. At right, this point right, too. exactly. Yeah. Um, but I'm I'm just you know, wondering how many different traditions she draws on. Um, though you know, I expect for a book like this, you just have to pick your market and aim yeah. at them. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. And so number seven on the list is uh, memoir by Pat Conroy, The Death of Santini, the story of father and his son. And we know Pat Conroy from his best-selling books, The Prince of Tides, Beach Music, uh, My Losing Season. And so that's at number seven. And then at number 10, we have Anne Lamott, who uh, once again, it appears on the bestseller list. Her book is called Stitches, a handbook 
on meaning, hope, and repair. And uh, we say Lamont's latest inspirational title explores how we can find significance in the face of pain or disaster. We say uh, Lamont succeeds at using some of Christianity's language and symbols to offer spiritual truths that will reach beyond a church audience, and the delights of this new offering outweigh the frustrating repetitions, actually, of maybe some of our earlier books. So, But uh, this is number uh, number 10 on our list. All right. And of course, number 13 is that Daniel Steele book is Pure Joy. And it's a, it's a <laughs> right. book about dogs. So for <laughs> yeah. those who want a little bit of a, a change up uh, with that same heartwarming feel, then that's probably the way to go. Excellent. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Candy Chang will tell us how words painted on a wall became a globe-spanning art project. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Candy Chang on the line. She's the author of Before I Die, a book chronicling a very unusual art project. Candy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I suppose, you know, looking at this, maybe it's not entirely accurate to say that you're the author of this book. You're the creator of this project. Tell us, tell us about Before I Die. Yeah, it, the project has grown far beyond me. Um, it all started really after I lost someone that I loved very much, and uh, I went through a long period of, of grief and depression, and and eventually gratitude for the time we had together, and uh, and then kind of clarity by thinking about death so much. Uh, it really helped to clarify my life, but I I really struggled to maintain that perspective. You know, I think it's really easy to get caught up in the day to day and forget what really matters to you. Mm-hmm. So I wanted a daily reminder, and I wanted to know what was more, what was important to the people around me. Um, so I made this wall. I, I painted the side of this abandoned house in my neighborhood with chalkboard paint. And what neighborhood is that? It's the Marini in New Orleans. Great. And I, um, I stenciled it with a grid of this fill-in-the-blank sentence, before I die, I want to. Uh, and put out chalk so anyone walking by could, you know, pick up a piece of chalk and and reflect on their lives and and share their personal aspirations in public space. And I had no idea what to expect. You know, I didn't know if it would get tagged over the next day. So it it just, it really blew my mind when uh, within 24 hours the, the wall was completely filled out and responses were spilling out into the margins. And I posted a few photos online, and it spread. Uh, and then my inbox exploded with messages from people around the world who wanted to make a wall in their community. And so that's how the project has grown to what it is today. There are now uh, over 400 Before I Die walls in over 60 countries and over 25 languages. That's incredible. And uh, well, when when was it that you started this project? And how did you did you did did people take photos of of each of their walls from every city and every country and send them to you or what happened from then i made the first wall in february of 2011 mm-hmm. and um yeah you know some people would contact me and say hey i want to make a wall and so uh, it took a few months for me to figure out a way to provide as much information as possible to to these people about how to make it you know the best way to to do it all the things that you need um 
uh, the stencil, how to make a stencil, and uh, then people started to share their photos with us. And some people shared them directly, and, and others we sort of bumped into uh, online in, in different sure. different places. And uh, yeah, it's been really incredible to see just how quickly this this idea has has spread. I think really. Um, it wouldn't have grown so quickly with, without the internet. I, I actually just uh, a couple of days ago walked past a Before I Die wall in my neighborhood, which I hadn't even noticed oh, wow. was there before. I'm in, in Crown Heights in Brooklyn, um, and oh, I went wow. down a street that I don't usually go down. I went, hey, that looks really familiar <laughs> from from the from this book that I was just looking at because we were getting ready to interview you. So it, it's clearly they're they're sort of springing up all over the place. Oh yeah, absolutely. Did did you write on it? No, I didn't have a chance. I was in a hurry, but I definitely want to go back and write on it. Though I don't yeah. know what I'll say. You have time to think about it, <laughs> and that's what part of that's that's what, that's what the project is really about is is that it becomes this big accessible tool in public space to to, to really restore perspective and also to get to know your neighbors uh, mm-hmm. in new and enlightening ways. And my background is actually in urban planning and design. And so I, I started out experimenting in public space years ago um, using simple tools like, like stickers and, and stencils and chalk. And uh, my questions started out really quite practical. You know, uh, I used post-it notes to ask my neighbors how much they pay for their apartments. <laughs> Everybody kind of wonders how really? much their neighbors pay for their places. Uh, I used these fill-in-the-blank stickers. I put them on vacant storefronts to ask people what they wanted in these places um and i created doorknob hangers to to figure out ways that could share more resources um with the people around us uh they invited people to you know offer things that they have or to ask what you know things that they wanted to borrow and so a lot of these projects were actually really kind of practical experiments trying to figure out ways that um I could learn more from my neighbors that uh, that we could share more information, more knowledge, more more resources. And I feel like um, we have more and more tools to reach out across the world, but it's still hard to reach out to your entire neighborhood, right? And uh, there's there's so much wisdom in all the people around us, but we don't bump into every neighbor, so a lot of that wisdom never gets gets passed on. Um, but we do share the same public spaces. And if they're designed differently and you're given the opportunity, you know, what other things could we share with one another that would help improve our communities and our lives? And you've done public projects in places like Nairobi, Hong Kong, Las Vegas. Uh, how do you balance uh, taking your own approach to these other places and sort of absorbing the truth of those places and making those installations work with their own local surroundings and local cultures? Well, with the projects, I'm I'm usually working with with a, a local community group, you know, that's that's been there for years, and so um, that's that's the beginning of it. And then with many of these projects, they're very much um, all about uh, making it what the community wants it to be. So it's more of a question rather than any kind of answer, you know, and uh, and. and I think that's what's been interesting is, is to see what might come out of it. I actually I did a project in, in Turku in Finland um, asking people around this university um, what they wanted to be when they were a child and, and what they want to be today. 
and um, some of the organizers were worried that Finnish people were too shy sure. uh, to share in public. And um, before we were able to even before we even finished the installation, you know, almost all the like 200 prompts were were already filled out by people walking by, biking by. And uh, you know, for me, um, the interactive public art projects actually started out as my quiet way to ask my neighbors things that I was too shy to ask in person. You know, right. and uh, only later did I realize it had you know all these other benefits too. Um, it's it's really accessible to everyone. These simple tools, um, but also these open prompts make it easier for more introverted people like me to share. And so it's interesting to see how you know even in in places where people thought people were too shy. Well, actually, this is actually a, a, a great format for people who are a little quieter, you know, to be able to shy as as quiet, you know, share as quietly or as loudly as they like. Um, and also these prompts, um, these open prompts are anonymous, so it allows people to to uh, share in ways that they might not have otherwise. No, that makes perfect sense. Friends of mine a couple of years ago got married, and at their wedding they basically lined the walls with paper, uh, and, and in a very similar sort of way they encourage people to play pencil and paper games on the walls, and we have a lot of nerdy, introverted friends, and it was a great way for people to connect, where you're standing next to someone, you don't have to look at them, you're drawing on a wall together, and that's that something just a little transgressive about that can uh, can really surmount the barriers yeah absolutely and i think it's a i think it's a a, it's like a safe and gentle first step Mm -hmm. and i think there's something to that i'm interested in that space and i think that 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 open prompts the anonymity it can be a a safe and and gentle first step towards honesty and vulnerability and trust and understanding and about the Before I Die project, what made you decide to turn that into a book of photographs? How did that come about? Um, well, ever since people have been, you know, contacting me asking to make a wall, and I've provided all these resources online so people can either buy a toolkit with a stencil, they can download all the files for free and, and make their own make their own stencil. Um, and I've just been trying to play catch up ever since, and uh, and just trying to create a place where um, everyone can share their walls. And um, Rose from St. Martin's Press, she contacted me, and she had seen the wall that uh, that went up in Brooklyn um, at the Fulton Mall, and uh, it was one of the longest walls, and it was up for for several months, uh, and. I actually used to live nearby that area too, so it was really wonderful to see the pictures of that wall. And she, uh, she was the one who was the champion about it. She loved the project so much and, and asked uh, if I was interested in in, in uh, turning it into a book. And I said, "Huh, okay." <laughs> That's how it started. And so, for for someone. So uh, you, know, you describe yourself as shy and introverted. How does it feel to be voted by Oprah Magazine as one of the top 100 leaders in public interest design? <laughs> it's it's uh, it's really very nice <laughs> of them. Uh, but I think that's um, what's interesting about it all is that you know there are people in in the neighborhood who have who want to be different kinds of neighbors. There are people who want to be pillars of the community and there are people who want to, who treat home as a place of solitude. 
and then there are a lot of people in the middle and I think I'm in the middle somewhere and for me a lot of this stuff is just uh, you know when I look at the news and I see international news or even national news um, oftentimes I get uh, a little bit frustrated because I feel like there's nothing I can do but I know that I can make a difference in my neighborhood and I can try these experiments out and that's that's the small and humble place where all of this starts you know it's just trying something small out and and seeing how it feels and seeing what happens and going from there. Now you're working on another project in New Orleans called The Philosopher's Life. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, you know, all the projects I've made have, have been a kind of, like a form of self-help. <laughs> it's like me working out certain questions in my life. And, uh, you know, after the Before I Die project, I you know, I feel like I hit some sort of second half of life, you know, after Joan died. And I've had a lot of big questions about about life, um, mm. about what really matters, about what it means to lead a good life. And there's just so much that I want to read. You know, there's so many people who have come before us who have thought very deeply about a lot of these things, and uh, I want to spend time with them, too. And the library came out of that and, and other things as well. So this library will be um, a concept library uh, filled with books about leading an exam in life and also filled with books that people can recommend, anyone can recommend, uh, fiction or nonfiction, uh, books that have changed their life. And uh, we'll, we'll have a website where people can submit books. Um, and people have actually already submitted about 300 or 400 books and have written really thoughtful um, comments about why this book uh, was meaningful to them. And so each of those comments will be turned into book plates that will be printed in each of the books uh, in the library. So it'll be very personal. Um, but I want the library to also be this place where people can come and um, and find this kind of sanctuary. <laughs> it's like a, it'll be like a sanctuary for confused and anxious and worn out people. And uh, a place where you can have uh, bibliotherapy. Um, when I did the Confessions Project in Las Vegas, where I um, invited people to submit their confessions on these wooden plaques uh, anonymously, and then I hung them up on the walls, uh, so they gathered over time like a Shinto shrine prayer wall. It was so interesting to see um, it was so consoling to see that you're not alone, right? that, that you're not alone as you're trying to make sense of your life. And that project made me think more about um, what's the next step after that, you know. Um, as we're struggling with similar things, there are so many other people who have struggled with the same things and, and have found um, have found comfort, have found, found solace, have, have found different ways um, uh, to heal themselves. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the, the library, I, I'm, I've just been thinking more about how I can take that idea a next step so people can come in and share the things that they're struggling with right now, but also find, you know, um, recommendations uh, for, for different ways, different paths, different books, uh, and beyond to be able to work those questions out a little more, you know. I kind of wonder if can there be something like a, an AA for general well-being. 
Well, it's, it sounds like all of these projects have a very similar thread to them of building community and connecting people and promoting happiness and promoting well-being. Um, and then does that continue to, to motivate your art? Do you see that just being your, your lifelong project? Uh, that's how I feel strongly right now. You know, I guess I, I feel like the projects certainly come from where I'm at in my life and mm-hmm. in, in and the questions I have in there. So they're a kind of way for me to work out the questions I have in my life right now. And right now I'm extremely interested in in, in mental well-being. You know, I feel like I've, I've gone through dark periods of, of depression and existential crisis. And I wonder about the ways that we can work this out, you know. And I think especially in our age of increasing distractions, it's really easy to neglect our relationship with ourselves you know to really take the time to step back and pause and be quiet and reflect um and i feel like with every experience we gain you know new perspectives that can potentially change uh and reshape our guiding star as we grow and change we've been talking with candy chang and you can find her book before i die in stores right now candy thank you so much for joining us Thank you so much. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Reviews Director Louisa Ermolino dishes all the details of PW's best books list for 2013, so stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. And today, PW Reviews Director Louisa Ermolino is here to talk about the 2013 Best Books list, which went live this week. Hi, Louisa. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's good to have you here. So uh, we were hoping that you would give us a little bit of uh, a summary of the list and then maybe a a sneak peek at some of the the behind-the-scenes wrangling that went into deciding which 10 books were going to be anointed by PW is the best books of the year. Okay, well, the top 10 books are no secret. They've been out there, but I can run through them. There's five novels and five nonfiction books. There's Sea of Hooks, Miss Anne in Harlem, Lost Girls, A Constellation of Vital Phenomena, The Good Lord Bird, Dirty Wars, The Silence and the Roar, Men We Reaped, Going Clear, and The People in the Trees. And this is always a really exciting time for us because we gather together in the pub downstairs and we have a few drinks and we eat and we present our case for different books. And the great thing about a list is we can be as far out as we want. We can take the tiny little book like Sea of Hooks and decide that it's one of the best books of the year. If the editor can make a case for it, that's exactly what we did. It's a very odd little book. It's fragmented stories about an abused child who grows up and goes from San Francisco to Bhutan, and we think it's fabulous. There's um, books like The Silence and the Roar, a kind of fable or or Orwellian drama set in a country that um, sounds suspiciously like Syria. Mm-hmm. What we loved about this is it was actually written in 2004 before anything was going on in Syria. But right. it just, you know, has that universal sense of what goes on when you have a dictator. And of course, our cover girl, mm-hmm. who is 
Tanya Yanagihara, who wrote The People in the Trees, which is a wild fictional account based on a true case of a pedophilic Harvard scientist who went to the South Pacific. If that doesn't make you want to read it, I don't know what will. <laughs> well, I, I do like, as you said, how we, you know, there are, what, eight non-Ibis editors here mm-hmm. um, who all have been, we've been editing the reviews uh, of these books throughout the year. And, and and then a few weeks before we decide, you know, we before we, we, we meet, we start going through our list and we come up with things. And there are a lot that just, well, maybe not a lot, but there are a few that just stand out in our minds. And um, I do like the discussions that we have uh, when we each kind of bring our book and talk about them to, to make our case and why this stands out for us. And I know, uh, you know, uh, some some uh we get some of the uh uh the uh long list for some like the national book awards and and others and yes we are live so you will hear horn every now and again <laughs> uh in the pw offices but I, I think that holds very little sway for us as we're making our own decisions yes i mean we definitely take into account these big awards and who's nominated for them and we note the books but um Basically, it doesn't really influence us, although some of them, A Constellation of Vital Phenomena, for example, Anthony Marr's debut novel that's set in Chechnya, that was long-listed, right. I believe, right. but we right. put it right on the top. Yeah. Um, the Good Lord Bird, mm-hmm. that was an MBA, but for the most part, we just go with our, our gut and our experience and we've got a lot of experience and a lot of really talented editors so it's always very exciting and fun and I have to say that I'm never disappointed at the end mm. in fact I'm over the moon every time the list gets put together and I feel like we've accomplished this amazing thing like aren't we terrific we should yeah. pat ourselves on the back and what seems so so I, I mean it seems like a big process when you first started thinking how are we ever going to distill all these books that we've reviewed and and settle on on especially as you said the top 10 books i mean you've got five fiction five non-fiction but it all seems to come together i know it always seems impossible to me right and i i almost start out thinking oh with dread but no then it just gets more and more exciting and then we always come to this terrific list do you, do you have a personal process that you go through for kind of weeding out the, the books that you know are not going to be contenders and finding the ones that are? Well, we've started keeping a shelf of books of note so that, well, actually, I thought that would make it easier, but it doesn't. Somehow a book that is great just stays with you. You can't, you can't get rid of it mm-hmm. is how it seems to be. And of course, we have the great advantage of there being so many of us who see so many books. So even though there's categories that we may not read, like true crime, mm-hmm. someone will point it out who has read all the true crime books, and then you discover something. I mean, this Lost Girls has sort of been going around the office like wildfire. You know, yeah. we, can't, we can't get enough copies of it. And it hasn't disappointed anyone yet, so... Well, I haven't had a chance to read that one, but I'll have to pick it up if everybody else is going crazy for it. Because we all have such different tastes and such different backgrounds. And so it's really unusual to find a book that appeals sort of to everybody. Right. I've actually found putting together the the long list, the the, the hundred books, to be... uh, 
a little more difficult in ways. I mean, I find that I, I, you kind of know the top 10 or at least the top 15 in your mind, but then when you look at the entire year and you limit it to, to like, well, we know we can't go over uh, this number, I find that a little bit uh, challenging at times. I don't I, know if you did as well. No, I agree. And then there are other people that do go over. But <laughs> right, this is true. Uh-oh, That's another issue. That's another radio <laughs> show. Louise is People giving me the side eye here. <laughs> People who don't follow the rules. But um, no, it, it's difficult to pick. And you know, in the end, it's it's all opinion. But it is interesting how how things um, come to the forefront. Yeah, and it happens every year. It happens with everything. But um, this is a great list. And Louisa, did you have a personal favorite on either the top ten or the top hundred that well, caught your attention? Um, I was absolutely crazy about the people in the trees. Mm. And the odd thing, you know, there's always a backstory. Is this book was sent to the offices and it was sent out, and it uh, the reviewer was late, and someone I know. Um, in the business asked me about it because the, they knew the writer and I sort of followed up on it just because I like to do that and um, it's a book that could have easily slipped through I mean it would have been reviewed but I don't know if it would have been would have gotten the attention it got and sure. then it turned out we found it we read it and it just became the book for the fiction department anyway Mm-hmm. Just an amazing, amazing book. It is true how much serendipity there is in, in, in a lot of these processes. Absolutely. Absolutely. But And know. also how much work we do to kind of balance it out. I mean, I know that I definitely make a point of looking at small press books, for example, because I know that those are less likely to be brought to my attention. And so I want to make sure that I explicitly include them. Well, that's what's so wonderful about us, is we always include them. We always pay special attention to them. And, um, you know, they always get on our list. I mean, other press, The Silence and the Roar, the book I mentioned before, that's small. And Sea of Hooks as well, McPherson and Company, that's a very small house. And if you look at our list of 100, you'll see many, many small presses, because mm-hmm. they, do, they do great work. Yeah, definitely. I, I feel like that's one of the trends that I've observed just over my years here is uh, how much really terrific stuff is coming out from independent presses. The quality has just been consistently high. Right. And we also do, uh, we pay a lot of attention to translations, mm-hmm. which is great. We which is to. really great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I, there are not many uh, outlets for translations. No. And it's really important. Sure. In this yeah. University presses as well, too. So Yes. They do really good stuff. All right. Is there anything you want to say to summarize the list, or should we just tell people to go and find it on our website uh, and and enjoy it for themselves? Absolutely. Find it, pick something out, and read them. (laughs) You won't be disappointed, I'm sure. Wonderful. Well, Louisa, thank you so much. We hope you'll come on again to talk to us more about books and uh, reviews. Okay. Thank you for the opportunity. It was wonderful. Always great to have you here. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. If you want to hear your question on the air next week, just email it to pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet it at pubweeklyradio, that's radio on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. You can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. 
Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 